44 is where I've made it to. I have done uh, uh, some uh, repeats, uh, some psalms I've done a couple of times because uh, I've just enjoyed them and wanted to revisit them or give me a little break. I've been pretty busy doing this and very glad to do so. Uh, but we're, uh, we're at Psalm 44 at this time, and uh, I've really enjoyed thinking about this and preparing for it, and I trust that um, uh, the thoughts that, that have accumulated in my heart and mind will be a blessing to you as well. I'm going to read the entirety of it. I found that even on the longer ones, it's helpful to see the big picture. You're going to see a a shift here. Uh, It's going to start on a very positive note, uh, kind of like the beginning of a new year, remembering uh, all the good things of the past. Most of us have a golden age of our life, and our minds meander back there, and all we think was good. Why Why couldn't today be like those good old days? But those good old days, of course, were fraught with frustration and, as well. But um, we've seen God's faithfulness in the past. But quite often we enter that season of our life where we just can't see it in the present. And uh, where do we go from there? Uh, we're invited to cry out to the Lord. And, um, and yet this psalm does not offer an immediate response. And I underscore in italics, immediate. Because the response is there, and we'll come to it. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you perform in their days. In the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations them you planted you afflicted the peoples but them the people of God you set free for not by their own sword did they win the land nor did they did their own arm save them but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face for you delighted in them you are my king O God ordain salvation for Jacob through you we push down our foes through your name we tread down those who rise up against us for not in my for not in my bow do I trust nor in my sword nor can my sword save me but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You've made us like sheep for the slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. 
All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart is, has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. We have not, we have forgot, if we have forgotten your name, forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our afflictions and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our bellies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, grant us eyes to see your hand in the perplexities of life. Oh yes, may we remember your faithfulness in days of old, but may we see that you remain faithful even in the days of confusion. May we look to you and cry out and call upon the name of the Lord, our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's be honest. Sometimes God seems asleep at the helm. Admit it, we have thought that, have we not? As when the disciples encountered the life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee, while Jesus was comfortably asleep in the stern of the boat. It is downright perplexing to us when God seems detached from our troubles and silent in the midst of our periods of testing and confusion. The feeling of abandonment is a common human experience. But what is the reality for the child of God? Does God temporarily, temporarily lose control? Does God's sovereignty have limits in our lives or in our world? Does God really sleep? Oh, pagan gods sleep, do they not? At least Elijah seemed to think so, not acknowledging that they exist at all, but that they appear to sleep, and he mockingly indicates it. The false prophets Plead, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. Then we read at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god, small g. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, 
or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Psalm 44 is a prayer, or more particularly, a lament. A prayer of of weeping, of tears, of confusion, of disappointment. And yet it's a prayer that helps us think about these kinds of circumstances. And it teaches us how to pray when in doubt. So you weren't with me in the last two messages. um, But at Psalm 42, we opened up a new chapter in the Psalter. Psalms 1 through 41 were, was book 1, a collection of Davidic psalms and some of the best known. Beginning with Psalm 42 and 43, which are a combined, really are a combined psalm, we opened up book 2 which has a number of different authors. And here we begin with a collection of about eight or nine psalms by the sons of Korah. It's an interesting choice because when we dial back into the Old Testament, Korah was the great rebel who challenged the authority of Moses and paid with his life. And yet his sons did not carry on the undignified legacy of their father and now became worship leaders and songwriters and authors of inspired scripture. An observation that should bring hope to all of us. There are other authors, including David, but there are four or five different authors in this group. Another interesting thing about this group, uh, this book two compared to book one, I'll just simply mention this for your observation. Book two uses the name Yahweh or Lord in all capital letters referring to God about 275 times and a mere handful does it use Elohim or the word God. Book two, that's reversed where the lion's share of references to our Heavenly Father is Elohim or God, and Yahweh is used very little. Make what you will of that. It is an interesting observation, but we will move on. Some thoughts on Psalm 44. Perhaps this was a psalm that was written after some undesignated defeat in battle. It seems to be so, but we don't know what defeat that would be. And it would be an exercise in futility to try to figure that out. But it certainly is a period of great disappointment and distress. And yet, it is a psalm that remembers God's past faithfulness. And expecting that his faithfulness ought to continue into the present. But the present perplexity seems to be the reality of things. But there is still a hopeful future. 
There is a crying out to God that he might redeem, that he might show forth his steadfast love, that he may yet again rise up and enter into the life of his people. One commentator has outlined this psalm as a glorious past, a dismal present, and a desired future. That's a good outline for New Year's Day, isn't it? We do remember the good old days and God's faithfulness in those days. But the present always seems to seem bleak. And I think it does today to those who are watching. But the future is in the hands of the Lord. And the present can never be bleak as long as it is there. This psalm is a restatement of this idea that when truth of the past meets the reality of the present, we must rest in the hope of the future. Now, when I was asked to supply an outline, I had not gathered all my thoughts on this, so I just took some verses and and gave the outline. Now, the outline, of course, it still has the same divisions, but I will be working a little different outline, so pay attention to it if you're taking notes. So the outline I will be working off is a confession of past faithfulness, complaining of present indifference, and calling for future help. So there's a past, present, future aspect. There is a confession. There is a complaint. And there is a calling upon the name of the Lord. Confession of past faithfulness. There's really two parts here. Verses 1 through 3 is kind of the listing of gospel truth. Gospel as it was understood in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Gospel can have a broad and a narrow view. The narrow view, of course, has to do with the work of Christ in our lives, in his transforming grace, and his atoning death, and so forth. That is what we call the gospel. But gospel, in the broader sense, is any time God acts favorably in behalf of his people. Whether he delivers them from their enemies, or whether he supplies them in the midst of famine, or whether he shows us goodness in this way or that way, that we call gospel. And it all speaks of the ultimate goodness of God in his revelation through his Son. So gospel, is, is, gospel truth is in verses 1 through 3. We have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in days of old. What are they? With your own, with your own hand drove out other nations. But with them you planted. That is them, us, the people of God. You afflicted the peoples, but them, the people of God, you set free. For not by their own sword, the people of God, not their sword did they win the land, nor did they own arms, did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. I love that phrase. The light of your face, for you delighted in them. That's gospel truth. Yes, in the broadest sense of the word, but you can slide Calvary into that very general description and it works as it's intended 
The gospel story of the old covenant saint was primarily the story of redemption out of Egypt. And that is probably what is in reference here. And perhaps even the conquest of the land and God uh, moving them forward. A story that was told and retold and passed on from generation to generation. The way the gospel is intended to be delivered. All Israel's victories were in the hand of the Lord and not their own. That is that is. A given, and by the light of your face. Our great beatific vision is to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is where this light of the face of the glory of God leads us ultimately to look upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So the psalm begins with a recitation of gospel truth, but then it continues with a confession of gospel faith. You are my king, is confessed, O God. Ordain salvation. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For I do not trust in bow... It's not in my bow or my weapons or the earthly accoutrements that I trust for my hope. The sword cannot save me, but you have saved us from our foes. And you have put shame on those who hate us. But in God we have continually boasted and we will give thanks to your name forever. That, my friends, is a confession of gospel faith. As, an old, as we would expect an old covenant saint to make it. Essentially, we read here, what follows in these verses is a confession of faith. Acknowledging the sovereign rule of God. You are my king. And that salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah would say. Ordain salvation. And he shows thankfulness that he thankfully confesses that deliverance is in the hands of the Lord. He is sovereign on his throne, faithful to his promise, and worthy of all praise. My friend, that is as new as it is old. That's an ancient confession, and it's very, very modern. It's timeless. It's what, in essence, we confess when we confess our hope is in Jesus. But, and this is where there's a big but, you have rejected us and disgraced us, or at least insofar as the psalmist sees things. The contrast is really not expected. We have seen in these verse 8 verses uh, what appears to be the makings of of a faith-filled, encouraging psalm. And then it it takes a left turn down a blind alley. Usually it's the other way around. In the past, we are told we are sinners in God's sight, but But God 
But God who is rich in mercy, says Ephesians 2. But God who is rich in mercy. And in Romans 3.21, after the litany of sin in in the life of an unbeliever, but now a righteousness from God is revealed. So usually we expect the turning point in the word but to take us from the negative to the positive. But here we have gone from, from an expression of gospel hope into despair. And so the turn is really unexpected. In verses 9 through 16, we see a litany of sorrows. And they can't seem to get over it. Living life, we are reminded in the gospel, in gospel hope, can be perplexing at times. We can be asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where is he? Is he asleep? If God has worked wonderfully in the past, why not now? The psalmist lists the incongruity of it all. He gives a list, and the list has has the ring of an accusation. You, 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 you have made us turn back from our foe. You have made us like sheep to be slaughtered. You have sold your people for a trifle. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors. You have made us a byword among the nations. You, you, you. A litany of sorrows. The incongruity is seen in the fact that he mentions that that retreat before their enemies, ravaged by their enemies, defeat in battle, scattered, enslaved, scorned, shamed. And again, this drumbeat, you have done this, you have done this. It's a real shift in attitude here by the circumstances of life brought about by surrounding circumstances. I think we can relate to that. And if we have not dived deeply into this cesspool of despair, we have probably all at one time or another stuck our toe in its shallows. And then there's a bold complaint. And that's in verses 17 through the end. Verse 26. Essentially they complain in a Job-like fashion that their treatment is unwarranted. And Perhaps it is in one way of looking at it. But the psalmist does not understand, clearly does not understand the silence and the inaction of God. But in the end, they don't even realize what they are saying. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Maybe yes, maybe no. But where they stand, it looks unwarranted. Our hearts, our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. 
Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. At least it looks that way. If we had forgotten the name of the Lord or spread out our hands to a false god, would not God discover this? This I could understand, says the psalmist. That makes sense to me. For God knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, and here's the key verse. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now that verse is found somewhere else in the Bible. It's found in a golden chapter in the book of Romans. A chapter that Dwight L. Moody called one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. And the only chapter you need to memorize, if that's all you could memorize of the Bible for the rest of your life. Which begins with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you see, that's where this psalm takes us. In this bold complaint, they complain in a Job-like manner that their treatment is unwarranted. And this has both corporate and personal applications. We may see, be seeing our culture and our world falling apart around us. We who have had some years to say, things have taken a turn. And we don't know where it's all going to end. It's scary. But this is not the first time that generations have felt that way. The Lord is still on the throne. Andrew Boner calls this psalm the cry of the slaughtered sheep to the shepherd. And it's that cry that it ends with. And the calling for future help. Help, please. Awake. Redeem us. From for the sake of your steadfast love. The psalm offers no explanation to the cry of the psalmist. Oh, things are going awry because of this, 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 and this. God's response is not intended to make sense for them of the situation they are going through. It is rather intended to drive them to call upon his name. And that is important to realize. The the psalm offers no explanation for the apparent incongruity, the perplexity, the confusion of what they are facing. 
But it does await, and here's the key, and I've hinted at that, it does await a full explanation in due time, and particularly, I say, in God's time. In God's time. And we learn a little bit about how God responds to the prayers of his people. And it's not always immediately, and it's often generationally. We believe we must take into account all of Scripture revelation in order to understand the particulars of any point in the history of God's people. The immediate answer that is given to them is call upon my name and wait. Call and wait. Call and wait. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face from us? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us. For the sake of your steadfast love. Yes, they still believe the gospel. That there is hope in God's steadfast love. Gospel hope. Michael Wilcock has said, It is simply that unaccountable things do happen in this world. And either he will not give or else we could not grasp the explanation of them. So we wait. But back to the key verse. Here we read of a verse which is inserted into the argument of the Apostle Paul who gave us the treasury of his grace in Romans 8 and ends with this question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You get something of the context in which Paul might be thinking at this time. He quotes one verse, but he clearly has this this whole litany of sorrows in his mind, which brings to an end, yet for your sake, We are killed all day long. And what does he say? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written... For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And my friend, that was just as true to the old covenant saint as it is to us today. We will face these same kinds of of circumstances in our life, in our nation, in our culture. But our God is still reigning. And he is not silent. And he is not asleep. 
Their hope was in the promises of God. Our hope is in the promises of God that are now revealed in their fullness in Jesus Christ. The storm on the lake and the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was asleep in the stern of that boat compresses the timetable of this psalm into a much shorter period of time, perhaps a space of an hour or so. At times, it may feel like our Savior is asleeping. And, like the disciples, we may be prone to say, Don't you care? But Jesus does care. We know that in our heart of hearts. His word promises that. He says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And he still speaks peace to our troubled circumstances and our troubled world and our troubled church and our troubled life. The disciples were certainly sufficiently afraid of the storm. Storms that could be likened to cultural storms and national storms and international fears that we have. But with its dispersion at the spoken word of Christ, they were terrified. Interesting contrast again. They're afraid of the storm. But they're terrified at Christ. It has been said that those who fear God will never fear man. And there is certainly a truth there. And of course, fearing God is not the kind of fear that would leave us unglued in ordinary circumstances, might momentarily. But it would give us an adequate sense of reverence and respect and honor and appreciation of his divine and sovereign authority in our our lives and in our world. Why were they terrified? For in a single moment, they saw a Jesus who could speak one word to a storm and it would calm instantly. All of the, they, were, they didn't have to be experts in physics to figure out that all of the inertia and the energy that was bound up in the wind and the waves to be dissipated in an instant was some, something that only one could say, let there be, let there be, let there be. And in an instant, they realized who was in the boat with them. And he's in the boat with us too.
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul says, nothing. Let us rest there. Our Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, I pray that you will seal these words, this psalm to our heart. May it raise the proper questions to it, to us and for us, but may it point us to where our hope lies and where our source of calm exists in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.